Hey, Tapestry Church, we've had an awesome past two weeks in Next Gen Ministry, and we wanted to take a moment to share some of that with you. Well, in Chapel Street Kids, we just finished one of my most favorite weeks of the year, Vacation Bible School. We had over 180 adult and youth volunteers serving us this week with over 400 kids, serving in so many different ways. Our theme this year was focus, and we spent the week focusing on the things that we can see to build our faith in a God that we can't see. One of my favorite things that we did was learn scripture together. We had a very special guest, Anya Hart, and we told kids to get the memory verses, Anya Hart. I loved hearing all the kids reciting the truth of God's word to each other as they deepened their knowledge of scripture and of God. The energy and the excitement in the room filled my heart with joy, and we loved looking out over the crowd and seeing all the smiling faces back together. I'm so grateful for each kid who decided to take a step closer to trusting Jesus with their life. It was an incredible week, and I already can't wait for next year and what God is going to continue to do in the hearts of our Chapel Street kids. And two weeks ago, our high school ministry sent a team of 107 students and adult volunteer leaders to serve together in the Twin Cities. It was an incredible week as we were able to experience all that God is currently doing in Minneapolis-St. Paul. We listened to, learned from, and served alongside of established ministry partners doing incredible work and making an impact in their neighborhoods. We saw God move in powerful ways that we never could have expected, and we can't wait to see the lasting impact that this mission's experience will have on our entire church family because of the way that the Holy Spirit is at work within the lives of our high school students. So again, we just wanted to take a moment to thank you for all the support and the prayers that you as our church family have had for us over these past few weeks. Thanks. pray with me? Father, we just, um, we come today in, in, uh, with a heart of gratitude. Um, Lord, we recognize that today is a, a day when we acknowledge as a country a freedom that we experience. And we're gathered here in this space right now, um, not worried about somebody busting through the door to disrupt um, our gathering and free um, to come and, and worship you. And we don't want to take that for granted. Um, and Lord, I pray that you would continue to rise up your church, that in this country and around our world, that you would mobilize followers of Jesus to be agents of your kingdom, or that we would represent you to our neighbors, to our friends, to complete strangers, and to our world, that we would reflect your heart for your people um, here, now, and in every day to come. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. I uh, just got back late last night from a family vacation in Destin, Florida. Um, had a great time being with uh, my kids and my wife and some extended family. Um, I love the beach. It's, it's, it's where it's like my happy place. It's where I go to, to revitalize. And I, one of the things I love about it is I love just playing in the waves with my kids. I love the ocean. Uh, my wife has very different feelings about the ocean, and she even got, like, waist deep at one point in time. So I was really proud of her. She's certain she's going to be eaten by a shark someday. But um, <laughs> if you've ever swam in the ocean, you know how difficult open water swimming is. 
Um, in fact, I, I don't do a lot of that. I just like splashing and playing and, and that sort of thing. But you see people who, who do do that, and it's just impressive because there's so much force in the water that's working against you. And I came across this story of a woman named Florence Chadwick. I don't know if you've ever heard of her. She's uh, a Californian. Um, she was the first woman to swim the English Channel in the 1950s, um, both directions, and she at the time set the record for that. She, in 1952, um, the English Channel swim is about 21 miles. In 1952, she set out to do the swim from the coast of California to Catalina Island, which is about 26 hours. And when she left in the morning, it was a clear day, and about midway through her swim, fog descended on the water so thick that, that you couldn't hardly see anything and she pressed on and pressed on and about the 15th hour of the swim she said to her mom who was in one of the boats next to her i don't know if i'm going to make it she swam for another hour and finally she gave up and when she got in the boat she realized that she was about a mile offshore of of catalina island and she said if i could have seen it when they, in the interview following the swim, if I just could have, if I could have seen the, the island, I know I could have made it. In fact, she repeated the swim um, several months later. And ironically, the, almost the exact same conditions befell her. Fog descends, it's, it's, you can't see a thing. And she completed the swim this time. And when she was asked the question, what made the difference? Her answer was vision. She said, I could, I could see the island in my head. I knew what I was swimming towards. And that's what motivated me to keep going. Over the years, throughout the centuries, a number of attempts have been made in order to sort of depict what Jesus must have, been look like, what must have looked like. Um, in, fact, in fact, you may have seen some of these. This is one of the most famous ones. This is a painting that was done, um, actually not that one. Go that one, there we go. Very different. Um, this is a picture that was done by a man named Warren Solomon in 1940. This, this painting is the most distributed image of Jesus that's ever existed, the most reproduced. Um, in fact, maybe for some of you, if I had asked you, hey, to, to just sort of conjure up your image of Jesus, you may have very well thought of something like this, because many of us have, have seen this. Um, the image is actually somewhat controversial now because it sort of depicts um, Jesus as kind of a, a, a white American. This, this first picture you saw is um, the other one. This is done actually by National Geographic in co uh, cooperation with the History Channel. Um, it was an attempt to use forensic science um, to depict an image of, of Jesus. And again, it's bone structure from things that they had back in the day hairstyles, different things that, that they imagine what Jesus must have looked like. For me, when I picture Jesus, when I image Jesus, it doesn't look like this guy, right? Like, he, he, he looks uh, scary a little bit to me. Um, others of you may go to, like, your, your children's Bible, right? You, you picture Jesus sitting on a rock with some kids around him, um, and, and, and this scene where he's tender, and he's compassionate, and he's accessible, and of course, that's drawn straight from the Gospels, right? All of that is, is stories that we see told throughout, throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and maybe that's where your mind goes. We're in a series right now entitled Seven. Jesus' words to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. So we're looking at the first three chapters together. 
And in the section of scripture that we're going to look at today, John receives this vision of Jesus, the one who is the son of man. And when he, when he sees this vision, it undoes him. He is, is laid flat on his face. And John is someone who walked with Jesus when he was here on earth. John is someone who had a close personal relationship with Jesus. In fact, John, when in his gospel, when John is referring to himself, when he's telling a story that he was involved in, he would refer to himself as the one Jesus loved. John saw the miracles. He, he saw people get healed with a touch or with a word. John saw the resurrected Christ. John was there at the transfiguration. We talked about this from Matthew 17. A couple weeks ago when when they get this glimpse of the glorified Jesus and Peter and James and John, they're they're sort of like, they're uncertain. They don't know what to do in the moment because it overwhelms them. And yet when John here, in this moment, when he has this vision of Jesus, when he sees it, he falls on his face at his feet. He says, "As, as if I was dead, as though dead. The revealed Jesus overwhelms John. He sees the fullness of of who Jesus is and he falls at his feet. And then he's instructed to, to record it, to write it down and to send it to the church. That we too would gain a fuller perspective, a fuller understanding of Jesus and join him in this abject worship of him. And so that's where we're going to pick things up today. We're going to turn to Revelation chapter 1. This is kind of our last section before we're really going to start diving into Jesus' words to these seven churches. And we're going to pick things up now in verse 9. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So again, he's connecting with them in their suffering. He's living in exile as a result of his faithful witness of Jesus. And he says, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. So he's worshiping on the Lord's day when the spirit overwhelms him. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergnum, Ty- Thyria and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. And I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. 
Write there, write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This question that I want us to consider this morning, I want us to wrestle with, is what does John, and really, ultimately, what does Jesus, because he is the one giving this this vision to John, what does he want us to understand about the nature of who Jesus is? And then why is that important for the church? Why was it important for them then, and why is it important for us now? Why is it important for us to grasp the fullness of, of who Jesus is. And I want to just add, as we enter into this, that I, my own sense of urgency or importance regarding, regarding John's attempt to describe a, a fuller depiction of Jesus. If, if you and I, if the church today lives with a diminished or a diluted view of Jesus, as his church, then we will live with a diminished and diluted view of what life in Christ means. If if you and I hold a safe and comfortable vision of Jesus, then then make no mistake, we, we will live a safe and comfortable version of what it means to follow Jesus. The kingdom of God is not going to be ushered in. It was not brought here. It would not be realized by safety and comfort. And John writes to disrupt this small, safe view of Jesus. And he wants to replace it with something fuller and truer. We need this vision of Jesus. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, says, we tend by a perfect law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. And so here in Revelation chapter 1, we get an expanded, a fuller sense of who God is. So over the course of the morning, I want to talk, I want us to begin by looking at the revealed Jesus. The revealed Jesus. If you, uh, if you ever do research on Wikipedia, which is, I'm sure many of you have used that before, if you Google something and one of those pages comes up, and if you go on there, you'll see that this paragraph or the descriptions that follow the information often contains what they call those hyperlinks, and you all know what those are. It's if you click on it, it takes you to further information. So if I'm learning something about someone and there's an influence in his or her life and I click on that name, then it takes me to information about that person. As we read the book of Revelation together, as we study this, we we need to see, understand that this is full of hyperlinks. John's writing is constantly taking us back to Old Testament prophecies, images, and and really the whole Testament as, as a whole in order to understand what was said about the Son of Man, who Jesus would be, and now demonstrating, evidencing that this has been fulfilled in the person of Christ. In fact, John does this in in this letter, Revelation, more than any other New Testament letter. He's constantly referring back 
to, to words that they knew and understood in order to see and discover how Jesus fulfills this. John's constantly evoking the imagery of the Old Testament in order to grasp for us Jesus, who he is and the nature of what's happening and the nature of what ultimately will happen. And there's, we could spend hours looking at this and unpacking this and going back into the Old Testament and understanding, looking at what they were talking about and seeing how that's been fulfilled in the person of Jesus. But for our, our time today, I want us to just think of this in a couple of categories that, that John seems to emphasize as, as he is receiving this vision. And first is to understand that Jesus is revealed to us as the high priest. Jesus is revealed to us as the high priest. John's vision here in Revelation is, is full of uh, temple imagery. And it, it has a correlation to the prophet Daniel's description of the Son of Man in, in Daniel chapter 7 and 10. Just one element of this is the way the, the Son of Man is described, his attire. It says in, in that he had a robe that was reaching down to his feet and with a gold sash around his chest. He's working, it says, among the seven golden lampstands. And so he's depicting, he's describing the work in the garb of an Old Testament temple priest who's working on behalf of the people. So in the same manner that a temple priest served to represent the people of Israel to God and God to the people of Israel. So Jesus is our ultimate mediator on our behalf. And he's perfectly qualified for the job because he is the one who is fully God and fully human. So John gets this vision, this window into the heavenly temple and he sees jesus serving in this priestly role on our behalf the author of hebrews talks about the importance of this uh this understanding of jesus as our great high priest this is in hebrews chapter 4 he says it this way he says therefore since we have such a great high priest who's ascended into heaven jesus the son of god let us hold firmly to the faith we profess for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. See, Jesus is, is our access. He's our access into the presence. It's accomplished by, it's provided for by our great high priest. And in this, as followers of Jesus, this is our confidence. This is why we have reason to believe faith that God finds us acceptable because of our great high priest, by the one who is able, who mediates on our behalf. I, I knew a guy once that uh, worked as a, uh, in the secret service. And um, he would do all kinds of details from dignitaries to uh, presidential and, and vice presidents. And he described one time, oftentimes, as you know, politicians have, they know all kinds of people, sometimes celebrities, and celebrities have this way of thinking that they have unlimited access to anybody kind of thing. And he was on a vice presidential detail at one point in time when a very well-known celebrity that we would all know and recognize was walking down the hall. And he stepped, intervened, and said, um, can I help you? 
And sometimes apparently fame goes to our heads and this person felt like they didn't need to answer that question or whatever and just kind of pushed through and stopped again and said, no, I, I, is there something I can do for you or whatever? And they persisted. And the next thing you know, this well-known celebrity that we would all know and recognize is like on the ground with their arm behind their back as the secret services. No, seriously, can I help you? Like, is there, because you're not going back there, right? Like the only way for this people who in his mind had all the authority in the world to be able to get to that place was someone with the credentials, someone who had the access to say, hey, come let him in, come let him through. See, this is, this is John's view of Jesus. He's, he's helping us understand him as our great high priest, the one by whom we have access. This is his vision. And then John points out, he reveals him that Jesus is the one who is present. Jesus is revealed as present. Notice where Jesus is at here in John's vision. Verse 12, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was someone dressed like the son of man. The lampstands are later clarified to represent the, the seven churches. Jesus is there. He's in the midst. He's among the churches. Have you ever recognized how pain and suffering and difficulty make us feel isolated and alone? Even, even sometimes in a room like this, when you're surrounded by other people, when you are in the midst of genuine pain, you can be in an environment just like this and feel incredibly lonely. And I would imagine that some of you have experienced that. John's letter, written from exile to a community of churches facing intensifying persecution at the hands of Domitian and, and the Roman Empire, are reminded that Jesus is present with them. And again, remember what Revelation is. The, the curtain is being pulled back. He's revealing to them things that they could not previously see. When they looked and they saw fear and uncertainty and even the threat of death, John pulls back the curtain for the church. And they see that Jesus is, is in their midst. He's present with them. John's words, words that, that Jesus is at work there among the lampstands speak, it speaks tremendous comfort and confidence in the face of persecution jesus is the one who is present he's in he's in the midst he's at work among the church thirdly jesus is revealed in power jesus is revealed in power have you ever uh, found yourself in a situation like in proximity to the sort of power that you knew if it wasn't contained would kill you I, uh, I, I, when I was a kid, my family went to um, the St. Louis Zoo. We were visiting some family out there, and we went to this display where the orangutans were, and there was this big glass case there, and I was standing, I was maybe like 13 years old, and this orangutan just came charging at the glass, just in full force, and slammed itself right up against the glass. In fact, I, I jumped back, and, and then he circled around, and, and just right back at it, came and just did this over and over. Like, I'm like, what, what, what did I do? You know, like, and just kept coming at it. And you knew, I knew without a doubt that if that glass was not there, if that glass gave way, that I would not stand a chance. 
that that, that animal could rip me limb from limb in, in a second. And uh, the, the man standing behind me was the, the zoo veterinarian. And he kind of leaned over and he said, I, I had to do some work on him this week. He's kind of mad at me right now. <laughs> and I said, okay. You know, like, because you knew you were in the proximity of something that if, if, if this power was not restrained, you would be destroyed. Jesus is revealed to the church, to John as the one who is full of power. And look how this, at the end of this section here, back in, in Revelation 1, because Jesus speaks to John. This is in verse 17. He says, when I saw him, this is John speaking now, I fell at his feet as though dead, which is, by the way, the right response, given what, what John has seen. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, I am the living one, I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. First, I, I just, I love the tenderness of Jesus alongside of the unlimited power. It gives us, again, just this window into the nature of, of God. That phrase that Jesus, is, that Jesus uses to describe himself being the first and the last, and Pastor Joe hit on this last week when he was talking about this previous section of Scripture. This is used by the Old Testament prophet Isaiah time and time and time again when he's describing the nature of God. And then that placed alongside these descriptions of a voice like the sound of rushing water, a face uh, like the sun shining in all its brilliance, this is revealing to us Jesus as the sovereign king over all. J.K. Beale in his commentary on, on Revelation, it's called his shorter commentary, and it's like 800 pages or something like that. I was like, what, what is the longer commentary like? He writes this, he says, this phrase referring to when Jesus refers to himself as the first and the last, this phrase refers to the complete sovereignty of God over human history from beginning to end. And it's used by the exalted Christ here shows that he too is Lord over history, thus removing any doubt that he is divine. Again, do you ever find yourself in, in, a, in a situation and circumstances that cause you to ask the question, has God lost control? I feel weak even acknowledging that I've dealt with that question, given the fact of what the churches were dealing with in, in John's context and what they were facing. But I've struggled with that at times, situations, circumstances. Maybe you have felt like that. Maybe even the last 18 months has, has caused you at times to feel like that. But, but from John's perspective, what John is saying is that this is a result of a, a limited view like an obstructed view. If you've ever gone to the Cubs game and your tickets say obstructed view, and you're thinking, well, how bad can that be? It's like two-thirds of the field is obstructed. You're like, you can't see it. He's saying this is, this now John here is seeing with clarity. The curtain is being pulled back, and Jesus is revealed as the sovereign king, and history is moving to an end. It's a result that he will one day accomplish. The power and the sovereignty of, of Jesus is revealed so the church will take comfort not in their circumstances, 
but rather in their Savior. I think one of the clearest depictions of this, that, and I love it, is in the Old Testament from the prophet Daniel, and he tells reports on the faith of, of three Hebrew um, young men named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In fact, that's not their Hebrew names. And many of you might be familiar with this story, but they're brought before the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, because they refuse to bow down to his image. Their, their faith in, in Yahweh will not allow them to do that. And, and Nebuchadnezzar says, look, either you're going to bow down or I'm, I am going to throw you in this furnace to your end. And they say, do what you have to do. But here's the thing. You think you're king, but we know he is. He can save us if he wants to. If he doesn't, he doesn't have to, but we will not bow down to you. Like that is, that is a confidence. That's a response of somebody who understands where power lies and who the sovereign king is. And they respond in faith. Fourthly, Jesus is revealed as judge. He's revealed as judge. John writes in verse 16b, maybe you, maybe you picked up on this. He says, And coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. The prophet Isaiah describes it this way. He says, he will strike with a rod out of his mouth. And we're going to talk more about this over the next several weeks together when we start working our way through Jesus' words to these seven churches. But as the double-edged sword implies, there are two aspects of this. On the one hand, there is vindication, and on the other hand, there is accountability. On the one hand, there's assurance of knowing that that evil and hate and wickedness, that they will be defeated and that they will be judged. I think sometimes in the modern North American church, we struggle with this aspect of, of who Jesus is because we have not, we as generally have lived free of an experience of persecution. But if we were the church in southern Sudan right now, if, if we were meeting as the underground church living in China right now, if we were meeting at any place in time throughout history where Christians have been persecuted and their lives have been threatened simply because of their decision to identify with Jesus, we would cling to this. To them, these are, are words of hope and of justice. And John understands it. Um, he understands it from, from the perspective of one who has, in fact, faced persecution. However, this, this quality of Jesus is also intended to, to evoke faithfulness, to inspire obedience and endurance. Because he is fully just. right? He's not just justice for the other guy. John, John's vision is intended to serve the church as a reminder and we're gonna we're gonna see a lot more of this over the course of these next several weeks together jesus is clear when he speaks to the church there's you will be held accountable christ will judge disobedience in the world to be certain but he will judge disobedience in the church as well so this this refutes any idea that we can have sometimes and it's enticing that, that how we live right now, our actions and our choices as Jesus followers are more or less irrelevant. 
Right? That's that small view of Jesus living. That's where like the kind of Jesus or he just wants to come in and kind of tidy a few things up and let us go about our way. But that's not that's not the Jesus that John sees. He doesn't see a Jesus that lets us kind of view this experience as just sort of biding time and then one day we're going to get into heaven. That's not it. That's not it at all. There is an ultimate vindication, yes, because Jesus is the definition of judgment, but there is also accountability. It's a double-edged sword, and, and, and we need to understand it as such. And then all of this is, is validated, it's proven in the words of Jesus when he says to John, I'm the living one. I, I am the living one who will live forever and ever. Jesus is revealed to us as the victor over death and sin and hell. And we find confidence in the truth and the understanding that he is alive. There's an 18th century poet that once said that, uh, um, and I've, I've liked this quote for years, he said, dream no small dreams. For they have no power to move the hearts of men. I think, we could, I think we could adjust that. Have no small view of Jesus. Because a small view of Jesus is, is powerless in transforming our lives. It will not motivate us. It will not mobilize us. It will not enable us to do the work and the call that Jesus has set in front of us. John, as he received this vision, is passing it on to the church because he wants to elevate our understanding of Jesus. In order for the churches to hear what they are going to hear from Jesus, what Jesus is going to speak to them, they begin, they have to hear it from the conviction of who is saying it. Otherwise, it would, it would be too much. John's vision of Jesus rendered him flat on his face. It left him incapable of, of responding. Even with the proximity that, that John personally had with Jesus, as he gains this fuller, truer understanding of who he is, he falls down as though dead. See, when Jesus is properly elevated... John's not just giving a fuller understanding of who he is, of who Jesus is. John gains a fuller understanding of who he is. He sees the disparity between the two. And the response is sheer humility on his face in front of his Savior. See, an accurate perspective on Jesus gives us a more accurate perspective on everything else. When Jesus is understood as the priestly, present, powerful, sovereign king and judge who is alive, who is eternal, and who will live forever and ever, then we as his followers, we as the church, will live out the purpose and call that he has set in front of us. So the question before us today is how do I see Jesus? How do you see Jesus? Because if we see him like John did, and we need to, if, we're, if we will live out the work that he's given us as his church, 
if we see him like John did, we fall at his feet in worship of him. This morning, we have the opportunity, and I'm going to ask Katie, would you hand me the communion elements there? Forgot to bring this up with me. You know, I, I think one of the purposes of communion, coming to the Lord's table, and by the way, if you did not get these as you walked in this morning, would you just raise your hand and our ushers will walk and they will make sure you get these. There's some in back here. Um, there's a few. I want to make sure that you have these today. One of the purposes of the Lord's table is to give us a fuller view of Jesus. It's to help prevent the church from settling into a diminished, belittled view of Jesus because we come back to what Jesus said about himself and we come back to what he accomplished. So if you're new with us this morning, first off, you're welcome to receive communion. This is not a Chapel Street thing. This is a table of our Lord Jesus Christ thing. And the only parameters around which that we uh, ask that you consider is that you be living in faith in Jesus. And, and so if you're still exploring what it means to follow Jesus, you're absolutely welcome here. I would invite you to kind of just take this moment in. Um, this is a, a, an expression of worship in the body of Christ to him, and, uh, and maybe it will show you a little bit about um, how we view him. If you are a follower of Jesus, I invite you to peel back this top layer, the cellophane on top, and that will reveal the wafer. If you would take that. When Jesus was with his disciples in the upper room, he took a piece of unleavened bread and he broke it and he gave it to him. And as he looked at his disciples, he said, this, this bread that I'm giving you, this, this is my body. It's going to be broken for you. As you take this bread, be reminded, have your vision of Jesus expanded. This is the body of Christ given for you, take and eat in remembrance of him. And then Jesus took the cup. He said, this cup is my blood. It's the blood of a new covenant that's been shed for the forgiveness of sins. Such good news. This is the blood of Jesus that was shed for you. Take and drink in remembrance of him. And Jesus, we do come before you today as your church. And Lord, we confess that oftentimes we settle for a smaller vision of you. But Holy Spirit, would you expand our eyes so that we may see in more truth, with greater clarity, who our Savior is so that we would respond to his call and faithfulness. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus.